So this was a huge treasure, but it was very remote, very inaccessible, and under threat from the, the Japanese empire. So this information uh, that's discovered in 1936 is like dynamite, but it is not, uh, it's kept secret. Not very many people know about it. Um, they basically go about seeking to uh, hide this. It's an El Dorado of sorts. It's, a, it's the biggest gold mine in human history, and they don't want it to be discovered. Dozy, they got the name of the um, Dutch geologist who made this big discovery, he said there was really no rock. It was just ore. Uh, they found the Grassberg across the metal, and they even put a little time capsule down to uh, mark their discovery that later they had to go back and retrieve. In 1936, these guys return and they write a book on this. And Dozy writes a report in 1939, and it's in English, even though he's a Dutch speaker. And they obscure the value of the uh, gold deposits here by mixing up the English and uh, Dutch ways that you would abbreviate, like grams versus grains. And basically, they they vastly underreported. Or in a misleading way in the summary, uh, the actual amount of gold that was there. So uh, Dozy later said that many samples came back, extra ones, and what he had found was correct, and that it was even better than his initial assessments, but only Dutch officials and the Netherlands New Guinea Petroleum Company knew about this. And the Netherlands New Guinea Petroleum Company was a standard oil company created by, you know, Alan Dulles and other corporate lawyers. Uh, Dozy later described this this place as a mountain of gold on the moon. Okay, meaning that this is just solid gold, but it is not easy to access. You know, like the moon. So they conceal it. They hide this for <laughs> quite a long time. So uh, you know, as we're talking about, uh, obviously Japan's involvement in the Pacific and, and the U.S. They're clashing over what is seen to be a resource-rich region, but even Sukarno, the eventual independence leader, is not aware of the of the gold mine. And just to drive this home for people, the American Exception audience will be aware of this because we've we've been doing a series about Indonesia. Um, but for the multipolarista audience, um, this is essentially like a one to two trillion dollar heist over the course of twenty years, and. It, it runs the gamut from Dulles and oil companies all the way through, you know, uh, uh, the UN and Dog Hammarskjöld, and we probably won't get to a lot of that. But I just want to like this is uh, Indonesia is already a sort of criminally undertold story in the pantheon of like American Cold War history, but this angle specifically uh, adds a lot of motivation as to why you would wipe out a million to, to three million uh, supposed communists or, or, or just innocent people uh, in Indonesia is that, uh, of course, these people would because they stood, stood to gain everything, a unimaginable amount of wealth bigger than most countries' economies. So, uh, you know, that totally changes the look of what's happening here, even though that's kept very quiet. And like he said, it, it, it was hidden from pretty much everyone except a few people in the Netherlands. Uh, who really couldn't do that much about it as much as they tried to. And then also U.S. presidents, uh, you know, JFK was was unaware of it, for example. So it was kept under wraps and was sort of a 25-year geopolitical heist that we probably, you know, there's very few things that are comparable, uh, probably the closest being the Congo. But you know, so uh, having, you know, uh, the intelligence services and, and the Rockefellers are aware of this, you know, essentially, like you said, a mountain of gold on the moon. 
so what does that have in terms of an impact on the course of Indonesian history after World War II? Well, it, it puts Indonesia in the center of kind of a, a perfect storm that it doesn't even really understand it itself completely because the res this, resor this resource angle is unknown to them. But Sukarno himself was an independent nationalist uh, who didn't want to be a part of the communist, you know, he didn't want to be a Soviet satellite and he didn't want to be a U.S. neocolony. Um, that is just, which, which has made him already kind of a target of the U.S. empire. Um, he was the person behind the non-aligned movement. Um, and in 1955, he was the host of the Bandung Conference, which invited other leaders from the third world to come to Indonesia and discuss their plans to uh, set out to build, the, to, to chart an independent course away from U.S. domination or Soviet domination. So they, they were for decolonization first. And they wanted to avoid neocolonization. So Ban, uh, Sukarno became a lightning rod for these kinds of people. And he was identified by people like Richard Nixon as basically a nationalist, not a communist, which is accurate. But, of course, there are problems with this. Uh, other sponsors of the Bandung Conference were Burma in India, Indonesia, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. So places with uh, really long, serious colonial histories. And Egypt. And Egypt as well. Yeah, Egypt was an attendee, uh, and so they, this was this was the non-aligned movement uh, that em that emerged in the 1950s, and this is really the precursor to what we're seeing today with this push towards multipolarity. So this is an important area to understand. It's important to see what happened to these people and to see why the U.S. is so opposed to multipolarity. U.S. wants unipolarity. They'll tolerate biopolarity you know, bipolarity, which they had under the Cold War, but they didn't like that. They actually sought to bring about the end of the Soviet Union to establish unipolarity. Uh, but that that particular initiative is falling apart as we speak. And so we should go back and look at this time period to understand the threat that unipolarity is perceived as by U.S. empire. Um, at, during this conference, the U.S. using um, people like uh, assets like the KMT, you know, and Air America, the heroin trafficking KMT CIA airline, they uh, planted a bomb on the Kashmir princess that was supposed to take Zhou Enlai, Chinese, a Chinese high official. I think he may have been the premier at the time, right? That was his title, but he was like generally considered like the number two behind Mao uh, in, in the People's Republic of China. Uh, he some, for some reason, he switches planes and he makes it there safely. And the people on the Kashmir princess uh, get killed when the bomb explodes that was planted by, you know, KMT CIA assets. Uh, but he's able, Joe and Lai is able to make it to uh, Bandung. And this whole movement, the non-aligned movement, evolves into the, or the, the Bandung conference gives rise to the non-aligned movement. They eventually re release this 10-point declaration on promotion of world peace and cooperation and if you look at them, they are essentially arguing for things very similar to what China is arguing now, and even what Putin has called for as well, um, which is respect for human rights and support for the UN Charter. I mean, it's easy to say now that like the Ukraine war represents this violation of the UN Charter, which is not a hard case to make, but so did the Maidan coup. Uh, and so there we are. But in generally speaking, these are the forces who want international law to prevail and well, whereas the U.S. wants, just as it did back then, although they didn't use this phrase then, they want the rules-based international order to prevail, which is essentially 
meaning that the U.S. gets to act as the globo sovereign who can decide when international law will be ignored. Okay. Of course, a rules-based order in which the West, specifically the U.S., makes the rules and orders everyone around. Yes. I mean, any, any prevailing regime can be called a rules-based order. It's just, what does that really obscure in terms of who's making the rules? I mean, I know this is like the example you're not supposed to trot out, but there was a rules-based order in uh, you know, Nazi Germany. It was called like the Fuhrer Principle. Okay. Not saying the U.S. is exactly Hitler or whatever, but like the idea of like, oh, it's a rules-based order, so that's somehow good is like, it's very silly. But the, the, what they were calling for was, well, you can see it here, the non-interference in internal affairs, no coercion or exploitation of collective defense by great powers brings NATO to mind, of course. Uh, non-aggression, international cooperation, respect for justice and international law, self-determination, uh, equality of races and nations, all these things. These are, uh, th these are keys to what the, the multipolar, the multipolar movement that's emerging is also calling for. So this is very relevant to today. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire.